Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 393. I'm Ryan, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Lorraine Sink, a.k.a. Agent Me. <laughs> Great. Yeah, you, you did know. It. Hey, you just came back from Y'all West, right? I did, y'all. It was so fun. Y'all means all. It's a big <laughs> YA festival that's super duper awesome and inclusive, and it encourages kids to read, and I got to meet a ton of authors, and we did panels. The Women of Marvel did a panel, led by Judy Stevens and Sana Amanath, and- I, I have one- It was great. Problem. I saw Stephen Wacker was on, on stage. On the Women of Marvel panel. Getting up there. He's an Mm-mm. honorary woman of Marvel for okay. being a wonderful ally. Great. So we do address that in the <laughs> panel, just so no one gets confused. Sure. But uh, and and then we also did an awesome DIY panel with Sam Mags, who works for Insomniac Games, who works on the Spider-Man game, but is also a wonderful geek lady and author as well. So we had a blast. We told a bunch of embarrassing stories, and if you were there, you would know why uh, uh, my most embarrassing moment is when I lip synced to Cats. I have many questions, but we don't have time for no, that right don't. this second because we got to get into the show. Yeah. There's so much to talk about on This Week in Marvel. We talk about all the things that we're hyped about, some news, some big things. We have interviews. We have some conversations that were coming up. But we got to start off with the topest of news, which is Marvel Comics number 1,000. Yeah, I love you, 1,000. No, it's close. It's close enough. Close enough. All That's also not what we're talking nope. about. It's Marvel Comics 1000. Uh, we actually have a very special video announcement that I filmed with editor Tom Brevoort and writer Al Ewing about the project. We'll link to that in our article with this episode, uh, as well as it'll be on Marvel's Facebook and Twitter and everything else. But the gist of it is this is a giant 80-page issue coming out on August 28th in advance of Marvel's birthday, which is August 31st, the anniversary of when Marvel Comics number one came out. And it has one story across 80 pages with the beginning and the end written by Al Ewing. And then you have the interiors are single pages basically carrying the story throughout by different creative teams. It's a mix of Marvel current creators and and past creators and some people who've never worked for Marvel before. Some of the people in this book include Eric Larson, Taboo of the Black Eyed Peas, Jeffrey Virage, Mark Wade, John Cassidy, Walt Simonson, Alex Ross, George freaking Perez... Brad Meltzer's first Marvel work. It's tons and tons of uh, really great people in here. It's a huge deal. I also love that it lands right near Jack Kirby's birthday. Yeah. So it's like a nice a nice little treat. Oh, hey, Ryan, did you hear about this tiny thing? It's a Spider-Man trailer. <laughs> it's um or as Ryan Panagos wrote this on our our little notes, uh Spider-Man Farf Rom Hum. Yeah. You know that. You guys got it. Yeah. (laughs) After reading it six or seven times, I did figure it out. I hadn't had my coffee when I was putting the notes to this together at the beginning of the day. We got it. But yeah, we have a new trailer for Spider-Man Far From Home. Yeah. Tickets are on sale now, but the film comes out on July 2nd. And I mean, I have to say this is very exciting because we saw that little teaser before, but this is the first time that we've really gotten to see a big chunk of the plot. And I love that Tom Holland at the top of it is like, hey, there's some spoilers in this if you haven't seen Marvel Studios Avengers Endgame. So if not, you know, you've been warned. I mean, that that is like a part of the video. Yeah. You, everywhere you watch it, and it's, a, it's an important point. If you've not seen Endgame, I would say don't watch this trailer yet. Yeah, no, I agree 100% because it, it spoils some things. But it's awesome. We get our first real look at Mysterio in action. Nick Fury's on the scene. I was happy to see Happy. Yeah. He makes me happy. 
Can you say it one more time? You know, another natural inclusion of happy? I'd be happy to. Boom. That's why you're the best, Lorraine. Uh, there's there's lots of cool stuff in there. And we have a bunch of articles on Marvel.com. And then today, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. returns. Yeah, baby. So it's May 10th when we release this episode. So the brand new season premiere for season six airs 8 p.m. 7 central on ABC. But if, you know, you're listening to this Saturday, Sunday, Monday, whenever... You can still watch it. There's yeah. plenty of ways to watch your Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Over on ABC.com or on demand or or at your mom's house. Yeah. Aw. Go see. Say hi to your mom. Say hello to your mother for me. <laughs> uh, lots to come with that as we get into the full season. Again, it's airing Fridays, 8 p.m. 7 Central on the ABC Network. All right. So got to get into the rest of this episode. Our big talk this week is our second, but also kind of third War of the Realms roundtable discussion? It, it said second in the notes. Wouldn't it be a triangle if it were the third? Mm. It's only a line if it's the second. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard Persia, triple P. <laughs> Persia is in pain right now. So we are talking with writer Jason Aaron, artist Russell Dodderman, and colorist Matthew Wilson, sort of digging into the things that are happening between, I think it's issues three and four of War of the Realms. I don't know. I just read War of the Realms 4 yesterday, so I can't remember where normal time is in the story. It'll be between two issues of War of the Realms Correct. that are currently in print. Yeah. And uh, after that, we're going to get into our interviews because we're cloak and daggering hard this week. Yeah, so much cloak and so much dagger. I'm doing like a full metal face in my mind. Uh, We've got two interviews this episode, one with showrunner, executive producer, writer, and director Joe Pekaski, as well as stars Olivia Holt and Aubrey Joseph. Yeah, you know, I have to say I'm very excited to hear this interview. I got to spend some real quality time with them on the Marvel After Show um, where we talk about each episode every week which has been so fun. And we get to kind of like dive in on a weekly basis of like, oh, why did you do this thing? And there's so much meaning behind so many things this season. It's really mind-blowing. Yeah. And with Joe, it was really fun for me to talk to him because he's a huge comic book fan. Oh, yeah. And he worked on Daredevil. Yeah. You know, he's done so much. He's written some comics. He's done um, a lot of stuff. But we really dig into him being a director for the first time with this show. So that's a lot of fun. Hey, Lorraine. Hey, what? Where can fans find your after show? Oh, you guys should listen to the Marvel After Show at marvel.com slash after show or wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode drops directly after a new episode of Marvel's Cloak and Dagger every single week. Fantastic. It's like you've been doing that promo a lot and you're great at it. For approximately however many episodes of Cloak and Dagger there are, (laughs) plus some. (laughs) Fantastic. All right. Time to get into the rest of the episode, including things we're hyped about this week, comma, including news. Oh, my God. Mua, mua. Mua, mua. That's my new cultist kind of like... I play a lot of D&D, so like in my mind, it's a bunch of little cultists that are like, Mua, Mua, we worship Mua, Mua. No? Is that a thing in D&D? Cultists? Oh, yeah, you fight cultists all the time, and they like worship a deity, and then you fight them, and you smoosh them. Oh, but they're just like hanging out like, hey, I like Steve, and you're like, no, Steve's a jerk. It really depends on your DM. Because if your DM is like, no, please, I have a wife and family, and you're like, oh, I don't want to kill this guy. He's like, oh, it hurts so much. You're like, oh, no. Those are Um, good moral choices. Like you have having to have to make those choices. Yeah, where you're like really have to murder someone. Yeah. yeah. Moa fans, <laughs> Marvel Ultimate Alliance three, the Black Order updates. 
Now I'm just going to keep writing them like this to trip you up as we get into these episodes. Yeah, there's plenty of updates because Game Informer has yeah. MUA 3 on the cover of their June issue. And they're just going to be hitting it hard all month long. Game, <laughs> Stop it, Lorraine. Gameplay impressions, profiles, behind-the-scenes stuff, and so much more. Uh, on the like the first intro video showed Ghost Spider, Ms. Marvel, Captain Marvel, Miles Morales, Rocket. There's so much fun stuff in there, and they're just going to be hitting it all month long. Yeah. Uh, next up, how about this? Marvel Studios Captain Marvel hits digital HD on May 28th and Blu-ray on June 11th, which means I know what I'm doing for a weekend, just sitting around watching those DVD extras because they're my favorite. Yeah, there's some good ones in there. It's like the origin of Nick Fury, mm -hmm. uh, extended and deleted scenes, the gag reel, and there's going to be more. Yeah. That's great. Uh, all right. So we also, I mean, like there's so much big stuff happening now, all the time, we saw that Jessica Jones, the third and final season, and some mild spoilers here. Last season, you know, you had big time family feels with Jessica reconnecting with her unwell and super volatile mom. And Patsy getting enhanced by that nuke inhaler and going a little rogue, yeah, to say the least. A lot. Um, maybe. Yeah, but there's going to be so much more as we get into, you know, season three. Lots more details. Um, yeah, it's... It's, it's going to be an intense final season. Yeah, I, th I really think so. Let's change gears for a second. From TV to comics. Comics time. Patrick Gleason, he is a writer, artist, and wonderful man. And he is a, he's now put a ring on it with Marvel. That we're like in an exclusive relation. I would like it if every time we sign someone exclusive, CB... Sabolsky and Ricky Purden had to both get down and put a ring on the creator's hands, like open it up, and they both put the ring on together. This is kind of like a promposal. This should be at least a promposal oh, level yeah. where they have to like uh, lip sync to a music video or um, like make an elaborate sign. I'm just saying. Yeah, we'll pitch it. Yep. Yeah, we got to tell them to step up their game. But fortunately, it worked because we got Patrick Gleason here. Uh, he's worked on a ton of stuff, a bunch of New York Times bestselling comics for our distinguished competition. What I found interesting was the only other thing he's done for us prior to now we've seen like a piece of promo art, which is gorgeous, was a story in X-Men Unlimited number 22 from 1999 with a little fella by the name of Brian K. Vaughn. And those were Brian's much earlier days. Yeah. That's Both like bananas. That that was several years before Runaways. Yeah. Um, and so what's fun is now Patrick is coming in. He's going to be jumping on to Amazing Spider-Man, starting with issue number 25 in July with a short story there. And then he'll be part of the rotating team working on Spider-Man, which is going to be great. Which means he's going to do more line work than anybody on any other book. Because yeah. that's what Spider-Man really is. It's just like a ton of lines because he has a body covered in cobwebs. So enjoy, Patrick Gleason. Welcome to the family. Yeah. So we shifted from TV to comics. We're shifting again back Ooh, to TV. Ew. We're just like, what are those, what do you call it, stick shifts? I would say a car, but yeah. Yeah, any sort of <laughs> automobile car. And uh, we're going to TV because Legion is returning with its third and final season, June 24th on FX. Yeah, I got to say, there's a new trailer out. You guys should go over to Marvel.com or the Marvel YouTube and watch it. But it is pretty cool because Noah Hawley, who's the showrunner, has actually said that time travel is going to be a part of the season. They've revealed that Professor Xavier is going to be showing up in the show. I mean, it's going to be cool. And also, it's going to mess with your mind because that's what that show does. Yeah. 
Super cool. That's coming up in June. That covers some of the stuff that we're hyped about this week. There's always tons of news on Marvel.com that we don't cover. This was just some of the stuff that we grabbed. We got to go back in time because we're talking about this week in Marvel history. Oh, I'm the ghost of Marvel history past. (laughs) For the week of May 10th through May 16th across our 80 years. We're going to start things off with May 15th, 1948, which was the release of the first issue of Venus. And on the cover it said, quote, the most beautiful girl in the world. Venus, I found, is a really interesting series, though, because it goes into the early 50s, into the, uh, it goes from, like, Timely Era to uh, Atlas Era, but it goes from a romance, fantasy, sort of, like, teen romance book into uh, a sci-fi title, like, full sci-fi, she's (laughs) on, like, alien planets, then to a straight-up horror book, where, like, people are getting murdered on the cover. She got patsied. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Patsy Walker. (laughs) Yeah. But she would eventually come back back in, you know, the 2000s to be part of Agents of Atlas. Nice. Which is neat. Yeah. That's nice. Also, my friend Darcy calls herself the most beautiful girl in the world, so take it up with her, Venus. Deal with it, Darcy. (laughs) Okay, let's bump ahead to May 12th of 1964. Unicorn debuts in Tales of Suspense number 56. And I know this is very important, not just to Ryan, but also to me. Uh, I love Unicorn so much. He shoots radiation energy from his horn. No, his power horn. (laughs) His power horn. What a statement. (laughs) I just love Unicorn. He's ridiculous and wonderful. Uh, Also, one of my favorite things is sometimes, not all the time, sometimes his costume has a cute little unicorn on it. Uh It's like a little guy up here. Or like his whole chest is a giant unicorn. He's just like, yeah, dude, he is... He's, like, embracing who he is. He's like, deal with me. Yeah. You guys, don't doubt the corn. (laughs) Hashtag, don't doubt the corn. All right. How about May 16th, 1968? We're almost to the summer of love, but not quite. It's the summer before the summer of love. (laughs) And with the first issue of Silver Surfer's first solo series, which digs deeper into his past and home, introducing Zen La and Shala Ball. Yeah. Oh, oh that's like would be a great name to give to your kid, Shalabal. Ooh, I'll put it on the list. Yeah, there you go. May 13th, 1969, Adamantium is introduced into Marvel canon in the pages of Avengers number 66. They didn't expect it to be in Avengers, did ya? Yeah, Mr. Ultron. He's made of adamantium. And then uh, same week, Alex Summers dons the moniker of Havoc in Uncanny X-Men number 58. Oh, man, that guy's bananas. He just causes a problem. Havoc. Actually, he kind of doesn't surprisingly cause that much havoc. Yeah. Yeah, he's like, havoc. Not <laughs> havoc. He's like, havoc. Uh, you you got to skip- get that guy a dose of vitamins. <laughs> All right. And then May 14th of 1974, five summers after the summer of love. (laughs) (laughs) Deathlock's first appearance is in Astonishing Tales number 25. There have been many Deathlocks over the years, but this one is the OG Luther Manning. He's very influential to many comics creators, and I'd imagine even to the RoboCop. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about his origin as he was a soldier, who was essentially killed, and then his body was used to turn him into a super soldier, a cyborg, this thing, and with, like, robot parts, and then, like, he regains his humanity over the course of his story. And I was like, RoboCop is so similar in some ways. Same-sies, though. Wow. 
Uh, we're going to shoot over to May 11th, 1976. The Celestials make their first appearance in Eternals number two by Jack Kirby. I, I've been considering getting an Arishem tattoo for a while now because he's the coolest. He's got his little thumb and he goes up or down. You get judged by Arishem. So Arishem the Judge is my favorite. But other favorites, and because I, I have to talk about the Celestials, you've got Isan the Searcher, Oneg the Prober, and of course... Nazar the calculator. There's so many more, and they have very specific yeah, functions. He, yeah, he, the calculator is just like one of those ones they have to get in seventh grade. <laughs> TI like, uh, the TI eighty seven. By now, they're all like edition four thousand seventy million. <laughs> Persia, did you have to use a calculator in school? Okay, so they haven't ruled out calculators. All right, get at us, Texas Instruments. <laughs> <laughs> Sponsor the show, TI. All right, 10 years after the summer of love, <laughs> May 14th, 1979, according to IMDb, the final episode of the Toei Spider-Man TV series aired in Japan. If you guys do not know this, you guys got to just Google it because it's the flipping best. There's some stuff on Marvel.com of it too. The best is like, Essentially, Spider-Man, they throw his outfit at him. It magically appears on his body, and then he fights a kaiju. That is essentially what you're missing. It is everything I dream of every day. And then in May 15th, oh, wait, pardon me, 21, 21 years after the summer of love, in May 15th of 1990, if I did the math wrong, I'm doing this on my on my feet, guys. Don't judge me. Well, again, uh, Texas Instruments, log. please. Get to us with your calculators and I your adding machines. Desperately need you. So the second Deathlock, Michael Collins debuts in the first issue of a self-titled limited series. It's available on marvelunlimited.com slash marvel.unlimited. Dot edu. <laughs> yeah, that, that Deathlock series is super cool. All right, last one for us to talk about is May 16th, 2001. New X-Men number 114 by Grant Morrison and Frank Quietly uh, is released. And it marks a huge shift for the X-Men. We actually look at this issue, which introduced Cassandra Nova uh, among like big concepts and movements for the X-Men as one of our most seminal moments in X-Men history. It's the start of probably my favorite run of X-Men comics outside of the granddaddy of them all, Executioner Song. But uh, almost 20 years later, which blows my mind that it, we're almost 20 years removed from this issue, it still feels fresh and new and weird and provocative and like dangerous and exciting. My highest possible recommendation if you've not read it. Ryan? Yeah. What would you give up if you had to choose between like a burning building and Executioner Song? Which would you take? Save the burning building or save execution. Is it just song? a building? Is it like, like oh, I don't know. TBD. There's like a, you know, like a torture building. A I'm torture building, <laughs> Ryan. I know this you didn't, is you New didn't York. You give me any parameters, so I'm going <laughs> to let the torture building burn. All right, and I'm going to save executioner song. What else could you do? What, Lorraine? You want to save the torture building? <laughs> Fine. You are pro torture building. That's your stance right now. I don't judge that building's lifestyle. <laughs> That is This Week in Marvel History, but we got to look at the books that came out this week. Top books from this week's episode of Marvel's The Polist include Age of Conan, Belit, number three, Spider-Man, Deadpool, number 50, The Unstoppable Wasp, number seven, and War of the Realms, new Agents of Atlas, number one. Yeah, shout out to Greg Pak. Woo! Okay. Enjoy. Yeah. And subscribe, of course, to Marvel's Pool List wherever you listen to podcasts and watch video versions on Marvel.com with Tuck Tuck and the Incredible Rai Rai. <laughs> That's what we should be calling it right now. 
Uh, all right, time for our big talk this episode, and we are keeping on that War of the Realms train. Uh, it is our roundtable, part two or three, depending on how you count things. Uh, we are talking with Jason Aaron, Russell Dodderman, and Matthew Wilson. The whole point of this was to, like, get you guys a little bit behind the scenes, some information about their process, working together, some of the story beats, some of the ideas, and how they put this all together. So enjoy this conversation, part two or three of three or four? Question mark? Counting is like pretty solid. You know it what? pretty much works one way. Texas Instruments, again, we really need your help right now. Please hit me up at Agent M on Twitter, and then we'll come back with some more uh, after this War of the Realms talk. All right. Hello. We are back. It's me, Agent M, along with Matt Wilson, Jason Aaron, Russell Dodderman, here to talk about War of the Realms. We're here for a little Act 2 chat. It's just It's called Reclaim the Realm. It's branded upon the issue covers. So what does that mean? What's going on with this realm, Jason? We we lost it. Oh. We lost the fight. Oh, no. Um, the In the first Act of War of the Realms, the battle didn't go so great for our side. Speaking of, sorry to interrupt you, but I forgot to say, spoiler warning, uh, we are (laughs) going to be talking about the uh, a a lot of stuff about issues one through three of War of the Realms, particularly uh, issue three and some of issue two. So if you haven't read those, what are you doing? How can I help you? Hit me up on Twitter. I'll see if I can get you a a code for one of the issues. Come on, let's let's make this happen. Then you got to buy the rest. Anyway, Jason, please continue. Uh yeah we you, we got our butts kicked the good guys got their butts kicked in the first couple issues, all the Valkyries died, Malekith killed them all in the streets of New York, um and the the heroes were able to kind of make a retreat evacuate the entire city of New York to save people, and then in issue three we've seen that battle expand all around the globe so now there's, you know fire goblins in Shanghai and. Dark Elves overrunning London and uh, Roxxon has claimed the entire continent of Antarctica. So like that battle has claimed every continent on the face of the planet. The trolls now rule Australia. So our heroes have been having to fight that battle on every front led by uh, Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers. She's kind of in charge of organizing the global defense of Earth. Jane Foster has become uh, the all-mother of Asgard. Because Odin is off the table after all the injuries he got in the first couple issues. And Freya has to go lead a mission into Svartalheim, the realm of the Dark Elves, to blow up a bridge, to blow up the Black Bifrost. You can't you can't do a war story without somebody needing to blow up a bridge, right? So <laughs> yeah. they have to go blow up the, the bridge that uh, Malekith is using to, to teleport his armies wherever he needs to. And because she's got to go do that, she gives Captain America her son's axe and gives him the charge of go into Jotunheim into the frozen realm of the frost giants and bring back Thor, bring back my son. Yeah. So we get those two cool missions. It's pretty neat. Uh, Last time we talked, Russell, you were, we were about to give some spoilers for issue number two. We were talking about, I believe the characters you had the most fun with in these issues. What was, what was it about issue number two that you wanted to dig into? Yeah, I was going to say uh, the Valkyries, that um, double page spread where, you know, everything's looking pretty grim in Times Square and uh, Manhattan. And then we see Odin and Brunhilde leading all the Valkyries in to try and save everybody. And I was going to say that was, you know, something that I really loved drawing, one of my favorite parts of that issue. 
but then you know things don't go so well and uh, (laughs) we had that horrible end for Brunhilde and uh, I had just designed that costume and then it has to get all you know destroyed and (laughs) get all messy yeah Yeah. Um, but I really loved her in that issue so much that page when she and Jane are on the Pegasus and they both are you know fighting the angels I really love that so much Um, that was all really fun to draw yeah you you mentioned parts of Asia be up in flames and North America is like freezing at this point. I think the dead are rising in South America. All kinds of gnarly stuff is happening. Uh, for you guys, Matt and Russell, what's been fun about diving into the global nature of this war? Um, I like I like that we bringing a lot of like I said what we've been doing in the other realms and Thor and setting it in these more familiar locations and. And along with that, like we said earlier, talking about mixing in all the Marvel heroes into those situations, the ones who hadn't been involved in the Thor stuff prior. Yeah, yeah it's, um, I, I think it's actually a, in a later issue, but we actually see more. I, I think you see it in issue two, actually, some of the buildings in New York getting you know, iced over. And that was actually really great to draw because back in issue 700 of Mighty Thor, you know, Jason wrote and Matt and I uh, illustrated this double page spread of a vision of things to come. And you saw yeah. a lot in there. You saw Jane Foster Thor, you know, fighting the man gog. And you saw one bit, I think, in the lower left corner, you saw frost giants walking through New York with all the buildings iced over. And so you're, it was really cool to draw that, you know, as it actually is happening now that the future's, you know, coming to be. Yeah. Jason, you talked a little bit about it, but what lies ahead for Freya and for the team that is heading to the Black Bifrost? Uh, well, you know, it's like a Dirty Dozen style mission where you got to infiltrate a realm full of dark elves. It's like Svartalheim is all swamps and haunted forests and, you know, creepy bogs and giant crocodiles and loads and loads of dark elves. So how do you infiltrate that with Frank Castle and Blade and Ghost Rider <laughs> and the Hulk? That's their mission is to get through all those dark elves and blow up the black Bifrost. Um, meanwhile, you know that you've got the other mission with Cap and all those characters trying to rescue Thor. And then you've got, you also got Daredevil sporting the sword of Heimdall, who's now controlling the, what remains of the Asgardian rainbow bridge. He's the one who sent him off on the mission. So you got all these Marvel universe heroes who are in, find themselves in the in the midst of a fantasy story they're not used to to being in. And that's one of the cool things, I think, story-wise, art-wise, Matt and Russell drawing all these characters with, you know, Spider-Man with a helmet and a, a shield and Spidey complaining, like, why am I, why do I just have a shield? What kind of loser just goes into battle with just a shield? Uh, who designed Cap's jacket that we, we see? I think I, I've only seen the cover to issue to some of the issues, a lot of the tie-ins and issue three. Issue three, yeah, that's yeah. on the issue three cover. Yeah, it was Russell. That, I designed right? that. Um, yeah. I designed the jacket just because I knew he needed something to wear in Jotunheim because everybody kind of got some winter gear. Um, Scales aren't it. warm. Yeah, and I didn't think that he would really that character would wear something like a cloak or you know something as guardian e. And so I figured at Avengers HQ, we probably would have had some um, cap branded outerwear. 
And so we get to see that. And I tried to just design a jacket that I would want to wear <laughs> as a cap jacket. Yeah, I want that jacket, a hundred percent. Well, good, I'm glad you like it. My favorite part of that team is most all those characters have some kind of fantasy trapping, right? Like Cap's got an ax and Spider-Man's got a helmet and Wolverine is just there with a cowboy hat on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like just, he's still just Wolverine yeah. jeans and a t-shirt and a cowboy hat. It's just like he's up in Canada, like, yeah. you know, the wilds of right. Canada. Right. It's just yeah. like and miraculously, Canada. the cowboy hat stays on his head. Yeah. <laughs> well, he wouldn't be a good cowboy if he lost his hat riding a horse, it, it, even exactly. if it is a, a winged horse. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. I like... I like to think that his hair, right. yeah, which it's... goes out, got frozen mm-hmm. and kept the hat yeah. in place. There it's you tension. go. It's, yeah, it's physics. Yeah. Uh, one last thing I want to talk about for this act is Venom. How does Venom factor into all this? Or is that spoiler too much for issue number four? No, I mean, I think we see that in issue three, right? Like we see um, Venom face Malekith. So we see Venom disappear. Um Malekith fights him with the ebony blade, the blade of the Black Knight, and which he sets on fire, which is not good if you're Venom. Uh, and yeah, Venom's gone. So that's a good question as to where Venom is going to pop up again. Um, I would say he'll be a big part of how things go in, in uh, Act 3. Well, we definitely see in the cover for number four, he is on a leash, and it right. does not look promising. No, that's an awesome cover too. Yeah, all those yeah, bad guys. Awesome cover. Yeah. yeah, it's real neat. Uh, all right, that I think uh, sets us up for us to come back one last time when we come back to this week in Marvel to talk about Act Three, Midgard's Last Stand. So once again, thank you, gentlemen, for being on the show. All right. You're welcome, thank Ryan. You. All right, we are back. Big thanks to those War of the Realms boys for. Uh, chatting with us on a semicircle-ish round table. Uh, we're going to have one more of those before we're done, I think. Continuing to talk about War of the Realms. But right now, we got to shift gears one more time on our automocar of love over to Marvel's Cloak & Dagger because we have two interviews for y'all. First up is going to be Joe Pukaski, who is a showrunner, executive producer, writer, and director for the show, doing so many things. Yeah, he's busy. And then you're going to talk to Aubrey Joseph and Olivia Holt, who play Cloak and Dagger, or Tandy and Tyrone. Tyrone and Tandy, if you're going by name order. We'll be back in a bit. Enjoy the chats. Hey, Joe, how's it going? I'm doing awesome. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, So what is your Marvel origin story in the sense that, like, how did you first get connected to the Marvel characters and stories, not from a work perspective, but just, like, a fan perspective. I think, if I remember correctly, it was probably Spider-Man and his amazing friends. I'm probably not the first person to say that. Nope. But I do remember coming down, like, my parents were still asleep because they worked too hard, and I'd make my own cereal, and I'd sit there, and that music, you know, it's like, I always talk about Stan Lee as, like, the first voice of God I heard, and he called me a true believer, and I lived for that show. Yeah. It was so silly and so awesome, and I loved it, and I think... Those were the comics I bought. I bought Spider-Man, I bought Fantastic Four. And, you know, back when Spider-Man had three books and one was coming out every week, it was just, um, it was the thing to do. It's Peter Parker, you know, he's he's like, he's everybody. Makes me so happy. Because we grew up with that, like yep. that idea that anyone could be Spider-Man. We could be in that mask. 
Ah, it's so good. And I feel like it's just, it's actually this brilliant media thing. I remember my first Comic-Con, I was next to Joe Quesada, and there was something going on where people were very passionate about Spider-Man. I don't remember what it was. And I remember Joe saying, says, they don't get so crazy about everything else because everyone sees themselves in that mask. And I feel like it's this weird Marshall McLuhan kind of like you are the hero thing that Stan Lee and Ramita pulled off that hasn't been duplicated since. Yeah, it's magic. So we're going to get into the writing, the show running of, of all the stuff in a second. But uh, this season marks your debut as a director, right? Yes. Yeah, let's God get into that. God bless us all. <laughs> um, it was fun. You know, it's it's such a fun show to work on. I'm, I love being a showrunner. I like kind of getting my hands. You know, I, I don't have to be 100% responsible for anything, but I get to be an editor every once in a while. I get to be a writer. I get to pick props and do that sort of thing. And I wanted this season to direct, so I went to Jeff and Kareem, and they were awesome about it and said, great. And part of the reason I wanted to do it was to be able to have more educated conversations with my directors. They don't give us all the money in the world, but we're crazy ambitious. Sure. So I wanted to be able to, you know, when I say to a director, these are 10 pages, but they're all in one location and someone's tied up. Can you make a day? And they say, no, I wanted to be able to be educated to say, you can do this and you can do that. And also the nature of the episode was kind of sensitive. Olivia, God bless her soul, had to do a lot of things that were tough and they were sensitive. And I wanted to be the one that she was interacting with instead of kind of communicating through another person. Yeah. Flipping that around, how does your knowledge of the characters as the showrunner, as the writer, even as a fan, factor into the work directing an episode? I think it makes it a little bit easier. I have a little bit of an advantage over a director who kind of has to guess what I'm going to do in editorial. I spend way too much time in editorial and I cut things up. And as my director of photography, Cliff Charles, told me, he goes, you know, it's nice because every once in a while we're not sure whether you're going to like something. And it's nice having you there because you can say, I like it, let's move on. So it allows us a little more time to do that. And also with the actors, you know, I've had thousands of conversations about each episode by the time we get to it. Yeah. Sometimes you can't impart all of that, but when I'm there on the day, I can I can say, do this because you did this thing in episode six, and we're going to pay it off here, and then move it forward in episode eight. And, you know, not every director can be expected to have all that information as to the history of the show and where it's going. Yeah. It's, it's unfair to expect them to. So it's it's nice to have that continuity. For sure. So you directed the seventh episode of the season. Yep. By the time people are listening to this, uh, that episode will be out. And so... What is the process for choosing who directs each episode, and why did you pick this one in particular? This one in particular, and we decided to delve into some human trafficking stories this year, and um, I think we wanted to make sure we did it right Mm -hmm. above, uh, you know, first and foremost, but also make sure we protected number one on the call sheet, and and you know, she's an amazing actress who can do anything, but I just wanted to make sure that she felt like she had someone in her corner. Um, Also, I think. By the time episode seven came around in my head, the other episodes would have been written. We've got a few things behind us that I don't have to deal with, so it just felt like the right timing-wise to do. Yeah. The human trafficking angle is its a sensitive topic, but it's also a very important topic. Uh, how did you guys land in, into approaching that one? It started actually when I was working on my last show, Underground, which was about the Underground Railroad. I created it with Misha Green, my friend. And I was talking to the slavery specialist, and I was trying to sound smart. And I was like, so where's the most slavery happening right now? Is it the Congo, Sudan? And he kind of was like, no, probably the worst incidences of slavery are happening on the highways in America. We're down in Baton Rouge, and he was pointing them out where this highway meets this highway. 
that's where it's happening. And so that kind of stuck with me and haunted me for a while. So um, Amy Carlson, who works for Marvel, I talked to her a little bit about it. She found this great book called Killer on the Road, which is about how the highway infrastructure is basically the circulatory system of human trafficking. And I thought about like living in L.A., you know, you drive by a lot of those motels and you wonder who stays there. And more often than not, the answer is human traffickers and the women they are keeping. And we're letting this happen in America. So the thing I love about Cloak and Dagger and the thing I love about Marvel letting us do this is in the comics, they've been the ones kind of fighting for the lost kids. And the fact that Marvel has let us fight for them on the TV screen has been amazing. Yeah. But it's something we turn a blind eye to. And the numbers I heard were somewhere between 100 and 400,000 human beings are being trafficked for work or sex purposes. It's it's insane and we're not doing enough about it. So yeah. it's nice to have this platform and have heroes like Tandy and Tyrone doing what they can to at least expose it. Yeah. John, there's no fun transition there's out of not, this. Uh, no, it's okay. But, you know, of course, in addition to uh, Marvel's Cloak and Dagger, you worked on the first season of Marvel's Daredevil and you've written comics for us. What is it about the Marvel Universe that is special and important to you? I don't know. I think, I mean, again, growing up, being such a Spider-Man person, you grow up and your parents try to teach you how to be a good person. Your church tries to teach you how to be a good person. I think equally so, you know, Stan Lee and Marvel Comics taught me how to be a good person. With great power, there must also come great responsibility is as powerful as any word in the Bible. You know what I mean? It's Growing up, I've watched them kind of tackle hard things, even when... No offense to whoever created at the time when Cloak and Dagger and Power Pack were fighting drug dealers. It was probably a little misgiven, but they were trying. And I think there's a there's a moral compass and a real world connection to Marvel that I've always been drawn to. But also, I think part of it, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to Jeff Loeb. We were working on Heroes together and we we're in the second season. And um, this is my second year writing. I worked my whole life to become a television writer. This writer strike was coming around and I was terrified oh. and i was just basically hey this job you work so hard to we're gonna hit the reset button and, it, and it, i turned pale and i didn't think anyone saw it but i got a call that night and it was jeff Loeb, and he goes so i saw your face <laughs> when everyone announced we were going on the writer strike and i called casada and i called buckley how would you like to write some marvel comics during the break and it was honestly one of the nicest things anyone's had done for me professionally or personally even if i didn't already love marvel comics like you make mine marvel forever after that i love it how much fun was that for you as I got? Yeah, of course, you're you're making shows, you're doing all this stuff. But to be a Marvel true believer, a comic fan your whole life, to then get pages that you've written of these characters that you grew up with. What is that like? It was amazing. I mean, it's a dream come true. I mean, this the dirty secret that I don't think anyone in television talks about. I think it's about three times harder to write comic books than it is to write a television script. Because there's a certain thing you can let go and let a director handle in a television script. Where when you're writing comics, and granted, it's because I read too much Scott McCloud and all that, but like, you you have to decide what the frames are and what the panels are. You have to make some of the decisions that normally you can hand off on a director. It's amazing, and it was nice to take it too seriously. I had the <laughs> briefest and loveliest conversation with Bendis because he was handling the Secret Invasion thing, and I remember the best advice he gave me is just like, just tell your artist to fill every frame with like 90 more inhumans in the background. And it was, it was awesome advice. Cause I'd write these battle scenes that I was very excited. Like I'm, I'm still so happy. There's a scene where like Karnak's fighting a scroll and he's like, you'll never figure out my weakness. And he's like, Oh no, no, no. I'm the smartest man in the world. I, I don't need to figure out your weakness. I need to share it. And then he throws him off the edge. And <laughs> it was just so much fun to see it come alive and so much fun to like 
play with the word balloons and change things after the fact. And just like it, the whole process is really enjoyable, but it's really difficult. Yeah. For Cloak and Dagger, did you pick up the, the original Cloak and Dagger comics when you were a kid? You said Spider-Man, so you're reading the Spider-Man yeah, books. And I they first think up. I think I was young enough reading comic books young enough that I remember when Tandy and Tyrone showed up. I don't yeah. want to age myself, but um, I remember seeing them early and just falling in love with them. And again, we call them the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of the Marvel Universe. They can show up anywhere and you're just happy to see them. Yeah. But for these characters, initially, like, why them? Oddly enough, I, like, I feel like they never got their fair shake. And when I thought about television, you know, I'd probably been writing television for seven or eight years when I first wrote the pilot. It's all about relationships. And I don't think there's a better relationship in the comic book universe. It's weird. There's... There's heroes and sidekicks. There's, you know, there's Reed Richards as head of the Fantastic Four, but I feel like Tandy and Tyrone are the truly equals, and there's no sidekick. It's really just a, it's a divine pairing, for lack of a better word, and I just loved it, and I thought they could use a little bit of an update. There was an opportunity to kind of redefine them as just two people who needed each other, and I was, I was a big fan of Buffy growing up, yeah. and the idea of Buffy, you know, behind Buffy is nobody understands me. And so telling a show that didn't try to do that, but tried to tell the story of there is exactly one person who understands me was interesting. Yeah. And when you're thinking about them, do you think of, okay, here's what I think about for season one. Here's what I think about for season two. How do you approach something like this? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's exactly what we were talking about. We were talking about kind of what the best version of season one is, where the comic book should have spent a little more time. It's funny because the nature of comic books back then in the eighties was like, they'd tell you the whole entire backstory in like three panels. And it would just be like all this text in a yellow box. Like then blah, 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 blah. And so we wanted to take more time to understand who they were as people before they really got their powers and then explore their relationship. And I think in very loose terms, we had one, two, and three worked out with a weirdly ambitious idea for four. We hope to get to do it. Um, But I think season one was really about the call to action and will you become a hero? And then season two was about what kind of hero are you going to be? Yeah, that's awesome. Are there favorite comic references that you've put into season one, season two? Any from season one that maybe fans haven't even fully picked up on? There are a couple from season one that fans have not picked up on, but I've been advised to not mention them. Uh-uh. <laughs> well, then that means, kids, you're going to have to go right. rewatch season one. <laughs> um, and then season two, we actually were able to load in quite a bit. I don't want to give away too much. We're in episode seven right now. So in, in the next episode, there's a really nice conversation between two people about a hero we know. There's a couple things laid in. And then we have um kind of a big reveal coming up that we've been laying in something a little bit heavier than anyone could have imagined. Cool. I want to talk about the powers because it's just so cool seeing those characters and their abilities come to life. How much... Fun is that how many like tweaks and changes and, and sort of steps do you go through in developing the way these uh, oh my the God. work? So many. It's funny. I Another reason I was really drawn to Tandy and Tyrone for TV because it felt like we could do their powers well. Yeah. Like working on Heroes, I was like ambient light works really well and it's understanding that we have a prop dagger we use and light shines on Olivia's face and we get to put a dagger over it is great. And then on the Aubrey side, it gets a little more difficult because... We're basically saying he teleports away, and when he lands, he's. We have something of a diffusion and this dark energy, and my we have one of the best visual effects teams in television, and God bless them, they put up with probably thirty, forty revisions of each shot to make sure we're really because it, it changes depending on how 
Tyrone is feeling it, the nature of the dark energy is different depending on how he's moving. And, you know, they put so much thought into it that it's so much fun. It gets a little exhausting, but it's so much fun to really fill in the negative space in a cool comic book panel kind of way. Yeah. You know, I like the way you talk about it as the characters deal with approach, develop into feel about their powers. Is that an arc you were thinking about from the beginning of the show? And, and yeah, yeah, I mean, I think I have like a 20-page document. I have like a 40-page document for director about look and feel, <laughs> but a 20-page document on powers. And our big rule is like our characters have to feel something. Their feelings need to influence their body. Their bodies need to influence their powers, and then their powers influence the outside world. And it's always making sure that we're going through that step when we kind of talk about what we're going to do. So I think especially when you have actors like Olivia and Aubrey, you want to be character centric and then the rest is gravy. Yeah. Have those documents changed at all as you've gone through the seasons, as you've gone through. Yeah, absolutely. Roles? Like for an example for season two, we've um, the beauty of cloak and dagger is their power set is kind of expanding. So now we get to explore with Tyrone, people stepping into his cloak in episode four. I fanboyed out. Cause when we finally got <laughs> the, the effects in, I'm like, Holy crap crap tandy just stepped in tyrone's cloak it took us 14 episodes but we earned it you know what i mean and then tandy with her light bomb so like the idea is like as they grow up they're still kids their emotions are still volatile and unpredictable so their powers are going to be that for a while yeah it's that's so cool well i also want to talk about you know one of the antagonists i guess kind of mayhem you know it what were you thinking about for Mayhem as you, you started on the show and, and into the season? I mean, it was so great. Probably the strongest part of the Cloak and Dagger mythology was Mayhem. It was such a simple story that your ally will become your enemy and that you will get her caught up in this. And it got much easier when we cast Emma Lahana as Bridget because she had such levels. We would throw these things at you know Her audition was ridiculous. We'd throw these things at her and she would tackle them. So when it came around to talking about Mayhem and we can say this now, we were like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do a twist on the Jekyll and Hyde, and we're going to do Jekyll against Hyde. Mm. And it kind of worked out well. Emma, in the next episode, in episode eight, you're going to see her have some conversations with herself. And I swear to God, if you're not paying attention, you'll think there are two different actresses on the screen. So it's been fun just to be able to know that we have this character we'll fall in love with that'll turn into an adversary of sorts and then define itself as something different by the end of the season. Yeah. And what it, you know, is interesting about mayhem in the cloak and dagger mythology that we built from the comics is she has this sense of justice, the sense of right and wrong, black and white. Yeah. And the, what happened to her sort of changes the way she looks at things. And that's gotta be fun for you guys to play with in the sense of the show. It's great. I think our biggest challenge is not always agreeing with mayhem because I think particularly in this day and age where we're finally seeing women standing up for themselves and people saying no more people saying time's up mayhem seems like a timely character to say why the hell are we going through all this due process you know we know what's happening we know where the bad guys are why aren't we stopping it and i feel like it's a voice that is in our heads all the time um the thing i love about for tandy and tyrone this season as you've seen it allows them a, an argument point as to maybe she's right maybe she's wrong and it's funny as we go over the course of the season where Tandy and Tyrone fall vis-a-vis Mayhem, and where Bridget and Mayhem fall vis-a-vis each other as well. Yeah, it's fun stuff. What else can fans look forward to through the rest of Season 2? Man, I think, uh, listen, the next three episodes are a little insane. (laughs) Um, We're going to do some crazy things with video games in the next episode, as well as um, 
we were really trying as hard as we can to save all our pennies for the finale. So we were able to actually bring some stunt coordinators and directors from from Daredevil to do some second unit stuff, and we have a finale where we left it uh, we left it all on the table, and then we broke the table, and then we used the table <laughs> leg to beat someone over the head, <laughs> the Daredevil way. <laughs> Joe, thanks for being on this week of Marvel. Thanks for having me. This is great. So delighted to have Olivia Holt, Aubrey Joseph, stars of Marvel's Cloak and Dagger on Freeform. How you guys doing? So good. Yeah. Uh, so we're here to talk about the show, Marvel's Cloak and Dagger, season two. Very exciting. And from everything I understand, your characters are getting a better handle on your powers, your abilities, like really like leaning into being cool heroes and, mm-hmm. and all the things you get to do. So I was thinking about, you know, actually being on set, you guys performing in front of the camera, but your abilities are there's some special effects that go to it. What is it like for you to visualize? Do you have props? You know, how much of it do you do you actually get to see and experience from your power perspective when you're filming? <laughs> I'll let you take that first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think for both of us it's it's very different, but also very similar in some ways. I know for my character, obviously we're dealing with like lots of light lighting effects mm-hmm. because I ha- have a light dagger. And so I think for me, it's fun to sort of like play around with like the different things that because we have certain types of daggers that I use for certain things. There's, you know, a a handheld dagger, which I just use when I hold up in scenes. But then we have, you know, a specific dagger for when I throw them. And then season two, we'll see, you know, the new tricks that Tandy has up her her sleeve, which is a light energy bomb, which sort of comes out of emotion. And it's this ball of light and energy that I throw. And that's pretty rad as well, but it's all of this stuff is sort of put in post-production mm-hmm. with um, VFX and special effects and all that good stuff. But in the moment, it, it sometimes can be really difficult because obviously that stuff is put in afterwards. So you're not seeing all of the things like the energy that's forming around you. So you do sort of have to imagine what that will be like. And sure. sometimes you're overacting or <laughs> underacting <laughs> and you got to find like the middle balance. Exactly. So there's a lot of takes that go into it because of it. Yeah. Well, how cool is it then to see the powers come to life at the end when the special effects are put in, especially for, you know, like the cloak powers and like the teleporting and all that cool stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's the coolest part to me is just waiting to see the the final cut because this season, you know, Ty's biggest thing is, is that he's mastered is the teleporting. Like he's popping all over the place. So to see like how crazy the dark energy looks every time he lands is amazing to me. Like it just really shows how far these characters have come. And uh, I just can't wait for you guys to see the whole thing that happens with his, you know, Dark Force Dimension as well, which is pretty cool. I would Ooh, say. It yeah. is. It is. I love that. Dark but, Force Dimension such a like a, a really cool thing mm-hmm. in Marvel Comics. Or, I was thinking about the Cloak and Dagger comics we have. We, you know, we started out set in 80s New York City. It's right. really great, grimy and gritty and really fun. Uh, we have some current books that are set in like modern day Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And then you guys, your show is set in current day New Orleans. How important is NOLA to, you know, to the stories that you guys are telling on the show? I mean, it's really important because New Orleans is a city that has been through so much with obviously Hurricane Katrina and just everything. It's just it's just a history that's just rich in in culture. And it's just had so many things happen, like the, the plagues that have been there before. Like the one thing about the people of New Orleans is like no matter what happens to them, they're still partying in February for Mardi Gras, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I think that's that's the one thing that ties into our show. It's like no matter what the world throws at us, we always find that sense of hope and 
the sense to keep fighting back. So that's that's why I feel like New Orleans fits our show so well. And it's also just such a beautiful city. Like, yeah. To have that cinematically in our show is a plus as well, I think. it feel You feel the energy of New Orleans in our right. show. Like you watch it and it doesn't feel just like the location of these two characters and their journey that they go on, but it feels like another character. Yeah. Right. I love that city. My wife is from Baton Rouge. Oh. And yeah. so she went to school in New Orleans. And so... Like resilient, like that's yeah. that's the word that I always mm. think of when I go to New Orleans. It's, it's resilient. Also, great food, great mm-hmm. people. It's great just food. Can't go wrong with the food. I know. Great food. Uh, I I imagine your schedule's pretty wild while you're filming, and of course, you know, in times like now where you're doing all kinds of press and and fun stuff, do you get a chance to read any uh, of the Cloak and Dagger comics or any comics? What what do you guys do to unwind? Well, first mm. season was really cool because we our hair and makeup trailer the girls put up. All of these cloak and dagger uh, comics up in the so it felt like I mean, it was very surreal for both of us because mm-hmm. already because we were going into our first season and we you know are now part of the Marvel universe and it's it's already very exhilarating and exciting and then walking in every single day and seeing all of those comics plastered up on the walls it was yeah it was so it was really cool and really special and I mean going in season two and. Obviously, we do spend like a lot of time on set. We're shooting on some insane hours of the night, but <laughs> I think most of the time when we're not shooting, we just sort of chill and hang, yeah. and we don't do a lot. We're sort of <laughs> we're sort of yeah. boring people. I don't, know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if the best idea to wind down from Cloak and Dagger is to read more Cloak and Dagger. No, as far as I mean, they, they already are, no. go through a lot as it is. Sometimes right. we sort of like have to like separate yeah. like exactly yeah. what yeah. they're going through, and yeah. we have to. There's some tricky stuff that our characters, especially yeah. second season. Especially this season. Yeah. Especially. Totally understand <laughs> yeah. that. Uh, all right. So you guys were mentioning, like, there's a lot going on in season two. What's the most physically challenging scene you guys had to perform? <laughs> Dang. Why are you laughing like Just, that? Because <laughs> it's, I, I don't know. I feel like an evil scientist. Like, I have so much information that no one knows. Like, oh. you know what I mean? dun, dun, dun. I think this second season, it was very emotionally, mentally, physically driven. Yeah. There's a lot more action this next season. And so there was a lot that sort of went into it, like even pre-shooting. I mean, I, Tandy does a lot of ballet this season. So I went into like full intense ballet training before we started shooting. And I have gained so much more respect for trained ballerinas. I mean, I I don't know how, I mean, then they've done it their whole life and I just did it for like a month. I'm not nearly as good as like what they can do, but and we wanted to incorporate some of those ballet moves into the fight sequences that Handy has later on. So it was really interesting to like find the pieces and to intertwine like all of those certain elements. Um, and I had a lot of fun with that. And in most of my fight sequences, there's some ballet incorporated moves, which was really cool because most of the time you just see people, you know, sort of doing basic like martial arts moves or Krav Maga mm-hmm. or certain things that, you know, obviously involve fighting. Yeah. But with me, it was like, a very graceful, effortless situation, which is which is fun. It's cool. They've never done anything like that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say just all the the fighting stuff that I had to do this this season was very very cool for me to do. I felt like Wesley Snipes or something. Oh, like, like Blade. Like. Yeah. <laughs> so it was dope. It was dope. I yeah. love it. I love it. Uh, you guys seem very close. You have a great rapport. Is it like her? <laughs> oh no! Chall- <laughs> is it challenging to perform opposite someone you're very close to, you're good, you're friends with, or does it make it easier? For you? Um, <laughs> that's hilarious. I I would say, m- for the most part, it's easier. 
But sometimes um, we're just so goofy with each other. Like sometimes we'll just break sometimes on set. Yeah, and um, everybody hates us. They're <laughs> like, all right, we're uh, guys, let's go. Yeah. And it's hard. I mean, it is. It's difficult. We have become really close and we have a lot in common too. So mm. we have very similar senses, like our sense of humor is very similar, I mm. feel like. And so in, in moments like that, it's hard to like not like pull it together and like yeah. buckle through. And I don't know though. We... I think it's a little combination of both. Mm-hmm. It's mostly easy, mostly Definitely. easy. And I feel like for us too, like we both feel so passionate about this particular project and these two characters so much that we have a lot of conversation about like what we feel like both Tandy and Tyrone, you know, how they would have, like we, we sort of like dissect the scenes and right, we go yeah. through it and which, you know, I feel like makes the scene so much better when we do that and it's, it feels more effortless and organic that way. That's awesome. What are some of your favorite behind the scenes moments from, from season two? Oh, I know this one's tough because we have a lot of good moments. We've had a couple really great scenes with Emma Lahana and um, (laughs) we had a lot of that because I know last season you guys had a lot of scenes together, but I really wasn't in those scenes. And now this season, all three of us are in scenes together. And I remember one night we were outside. Do you know know what I'm talking about? And my... (laughs) My contacts <laughs> fell out of my eyeballs. <laughs> and this like seems really aggressive and like intense, but it was. And we could not stop laughing at the. F- I literally blinked and my contacts fell out of my eyes. And and it's like literally the moment when you should like, not be laughing. Yeah, at and all. it's like three a.m. <laughs> and it was a really intense scene. And it just. I mean, there were lots of moments like that, but I will never forget that. And like also, I think That's like crazy. they had brought a coffee truck that day, and mm-hmm. I'm not supposed to drink coffee because it. I, I go through every emotion within like five minutes and um, and I drink coffee and everybody was like, Olivia, no. <laughs> and so that I remember that night being really fun. And yeah. We all hit delirium really hard. And then once my contacts fell out of my eyes, it was like, it just, it it just yeah, it all. Yeah. It seems like it makes y'all stronger. Though. It like, does. No, yeah. Yeah, 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 <laughs> it yeah. does. Like, there's yeah. a unifying like we've been through some weirdness. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's a great way. To, we've definitely been through some weirdness. Yeah. Our, our crew is like a huge family at this yeah. point, it's you great. know. Yeah. Uh, one of the, uh, what has always I've loved about the characters going back, you know, to their origins is the power, but also the vulnerability. And I think you guys are hitting that really well. Thank it's, you. It's really cool. Thank really, you. It's awesome. Thank you all for being on the show. Thank so you. happy you could be here. Big thanks to Joe, Aubrey, and Olivia for being on the show this week. And again, make sure you are watching Marvel's Cloak and Dagger Thursdays on Freeform and checking out the Marvel After Show for Marvel's Cloak and Dagger wherever you get your audio. Ooh, that was so beautiful. Right? You have the voice of an angel. I like to sing. Oh, wow. Also, you guys, you need to tweet us. We have a tweet of the week situation. Uh, I think you guys should tweet us. Did you just say tweet? (laughs) What just happened? Tweet of the week. (laughs) Tweet of the week? What did I say? What is our question of the week this week, Lorraine? You just came up with it. Our question of the week that I just came up with was, you know, there are going to be a ton of creative teams on this new Marvel Comics 1000. What is your dream creative team to see together and why? Yeah, we should have most, if not the full list on Marvel.com to help you answer this one. There's some really great teams up in there. It's going to be great. You guys are going to love it. And of course, you guys can email us also with twimpodcast at marvel.com or you can send us a Facebook message at our Facebook.com 
slash This Week in Marvel or just has, hashtag This Week in Marvel. There's so many ways to get to us. Yeah. And this week we have tweets. We have a Facebook message and an email. What is it? Our birthday? Yeah. Uh, so the first one from Facebook comes from KJ Ramon, who says, Hey, guys. So I took off from work to go see the 11 a.m. matinee of Marvel Studios Avengers Endgame on Friday. My brother and I usually try to take my niece and nephews to just about every MCU movie. Shout out to Josh, Justin, Shane, and Devin. Aww. It's become one of my favorite traditions. The movie was everything I could have possibly dreamed it to be. It had action, heart, humor, and plenty of gasp-worthy moments. Quote, perfectly balanced, as all things should be. Yikes, too soon. <laughs> KJ continues saying, I watched a 34-year-old man openly weep in front of his family during numerous parts of the film. Me, I was that man. <laughs> but that didn't stop me from seeing it again with my girlfriend Jade less than 48 hours later where I was able to control my emotions a little bit better. Amazing movie, perfect way to wrap up phase three. Can I just say shout out to a man who cries because it's important to cry yeah. for everybody. Yeah. That's my feels. 100%. All right. We also have a message from Alaska. Yeah, this is our email from Samuel Lang. Amazing. They say, I started listening to your podcast last year and have been a loyal listener since. Y'all introduced me to West Coast Avengers and Spider-Man Deadpool, which are amazing. Sorry, Samuel. Both are now done. Oh. I would also like to shout out my local comic book shop, Bosco's Card Comics and Games. Their staff is delightful, welcoming, and helped me find all of the right stuff. Sorry, I, I couldn't keep it in. You were just going right into New Kids. I I've never heard of that band, and I didn't steal their song lyrics. And since I'm a teenager, oh yay, uh, that was my commentary, and have nobody to share my nerddom with, you guys fill the gap. Thanks for being awesome, Samuel Lang. Oh, that's so nice. I'm so happy to hang out with you, Samuel. Yeah, you know, you know what's interesting? I was thinking about this the other day. I had read this email, and I was like, I didn't have a lot of friends in high school who read comics as well. Yeah. It was really like a, a me thing and like I'd go to the comic shop and talk to the people at the comic shop a little bit I would read wizard and you would there would be like minor communities it's so great that we have stuff now where whether it's if you're listening to the show if you you know follow a group online if you're on reddit or like wherever you are there's other people who can you can share it with mm. uh, because even if you're in Alaska like Samuel and you know you don't have as many people to connect with Locally, you have these other outlets. So I'm so glad we have that, all that. Uh, all right. We've got some tweets in here. Tech Lord at Lex Pendragon says, My Twim of the Week for the 1st of May is Champions number 5, but War of the Realms number 3 was a close second for that great Thor reveal. But the heart in Champions pushed that over the top. It's not a competition, but you get to be the ruler of your own gauntlet at any time. Yeah. That's a T-shirt right there. He's so snappy. What a snappy phrase. It's one of the. I want the T-shirt to have just the words, and they sort of roll off onto the side and of the shirt. And it just trails off, and there's some spaces in between them. <laughs> well, oh, how about Jiggy Cruz? What up, Jiggy? It's great to hear from you again. Uh, you tweeted, at H&M, got to say, Lorraine Sink shouting, fui, 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 is the best. Yeah. <laughs> Two episodes in a row. Love it. I'm just going to become a character on this podcast. He just comes up and I'm like, what's up? It's lit. Fui, fui, fui. <laughs> That's me. It's H&M in the morning. We've got the zoo crew here. Yeah, it's me, Lorraine Dog. Fui, fui, fui. 
<laughs> Great. Know? This is get this ready, Triple P. I wouldn't be Lorraine Dog. I would be Lorangatang, and everybody knows it. What? I get like at it. me. All right, let's wrap this up. Last one we got came in from William Hannafan at Trekker68, who reached out to me with some, you know, uh, comics questions and stuff. He wants to read the entirety of Marvel Comics in order, which is a Herculean task. I literally don't know how to put together. But, William, I'm looking into it for you. And, you know, I'm just glad our comics are helping you through a tough time. But we'll see what we can do for you. William, there's a little shout out to you on the episode. I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. this is Marvel. Your universe. 